You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same And welcome to episode 282 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're back from Christmas break and ready to fight. Uh, in one corner, Nathan Gilmore, who is a, gosh, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it All going, that Nathan? Is true. I am doing well, man. I'm doing well. And I actually did punch the heavy bag this morning, so uh, I had I'm, hoped I'm ready. you did. I always picture you, I know heavy bag kind of makes this not true, but when I was a kid... I had one of those inflatable punching bags that looked like a clown, and that's what I always imagine you doing when you talk yeah, about hitting yeah. the heavy bag. <laughs> I, uh, I I get a lot more tired hitting this one, I assure you. Uh, also joining us in the other corner is David Grubbs, who is a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David? Hello, hello. I, uh, I didn't punch any bags this morning. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, well. Before we get into the subject at hand, I want to know what else is going on in the network. So, it'll be several days past by the time this drops, but there is a new Sectarian Review uh, in which Danny Anderson brings on a couple of his students and Todd Pedler to talk about the plot against America. I all- had so much fun listening to that episode. Now, I haven't read the book, and I usually don't listen to episodes on books I don't know, but it was so exciting to hear Danny beam over his students. Absolutely. I, I listened to it as well. There's a, there also will be a Christian feminist episode on Dolly Parton. That should be interesting. Uh, and then core curriculum. Michael, talk to us about our uh, second series. Yep. The second series is on Plato's Republic. And by the time this airs, there should have been two episodes already with the third one dropping tomorrow. So uh, if you haven't already subscribed to core curriculum, now's your chance to do so. And you can finally hear Ed's song on core curriculum on the first two episodes. Yeah, and uh, Josh Altman's show for on the second one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. I think his only appearance in core curriculum in the first two series. Well, our topic today is an essay by this guy Dwight McDonald called Mass Cult and Mid Cult. A few weeks ago, we re-ran an episode about Lionel Trilling, and we did that because McDonald and Trilling ran in similar circles and kind of have a similar cultural legacy, which is they were once considered liberal, and nowadays Reed is kind of conservative. And in fact, McDonald, I believe, was a full-out socialist at one point and then was not. And as the times changed around him, became kind of conservative. He is, um, he's most well-known for this essay, Mass Cult and Mid-Cult. And also for maybe my favorite liter- literary anecdote of all time, which is that Trotsky is said to have said, uh, everyone is entitled to his stupidity, but Comrade McDonald abuses the privilege. Nice. Uh, <laughs> although I think pretty much everyone agrees now that McDonald made that up. Uh, but still, one of uh, really a good line. So feel free to use that one uh, without fearing that McDonald will come back from the dead and uh, and and haunt you. 
So we are talking about this essay, Mass Cult and Mid Cult. I'll, I'll tell our listeners, we only read selections from this essay. It's about 85 pages long in its typical printed version. And so we read most of the essay that doesn't have to do with specific examples of works from McDonald's time. So he, uh, you know, if, if, if you're interested, he goes off on a long rant about The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Which uh, which we did not read for today, but which I have read in the past. So if you're if you're if you're interested in hearing McDonald uh, rail on uh, late period Hemingway, this is definitely the essay to do so. But I think we'll have plenty to talk about even without it. I do want to go out of order a bit and start by talking not about culture but by about society. The phenomena McDonald calls mass cult and mid cult both depend heavily on something he calls mass man. Uh, Nathan, what is mass man? And has the situation changed meaningfully since 1960 when he wrote this essay? Well, mass man is man before he accelerates to the speed of light squared, at which point he becomes energy man. Yuck, yuck, uh, yuck. <laughs> I, I had to do it, man. I had to do it. I approve. <laughs> I, I, thank you, I, My name thank is Nathan you. Gilmore, and I approve this message. <laughs> there you go. Uh, the phrase mass man, uh, the first occurrence of it that I'm aware of, and I'll have Michael come in behind me and uh, correct any errors here, is in uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset's uh, book from 1929, The Revolt of the Masses. Uh, in this book, he talks about a, a cultural shift that comes. Uh, and, you know, because I, I tend to focus on technology and history, it's really in the age of the radio, the age of uh, the capability for one center of broadcast production to reach gigantic populations, continent-spanning populations. And the cultural effects of this, as Gasset uh, describes it, uh, is a kind of satisfaction. Uh, so what these radio stations do, because they have access to swaths of people that are really unprecedented historically, is that they do a kind of scientific study to see what the least common denominator is among all of these people, and then they cater to it. And so the uh, in my translation of Gasset, the phrase that he uses is the culture of satisfaction, uh, the satisfied man. This is someone who doesn't want to be told that you need to reconsider that, uh, doesn't want to be told you need to defer to experts. Uh, these are the kinds of people who say, you know, I've got my opinion and no one can tell me otherwise. Uh, so, you know, this is something that is related to social class, but it's not identical with social class. Gossett says in a couple of places that you could be a multimillionaire and still be a mass man because uh, once again you have no time and you have no toleration for uh, anyone to correct you. Uh, now you know you pose the question you know has the situation changed since 1960 and another of these things uh, are things that we've talked about in uh, recent episodes. One of them is the rise of blockbuster films. Uh, so I mean you know these are to some extent, uh, engineered films that are to maximize uh, audience excitement, to get people to come back and see them two or three times, not because they are challenged existentially, psychologically, spiritually, or whatever, but because they raise excitement uh, on a sort of, you know, uh, not a guttural level, that's a linguistic term, uh, on a gut level. Uh, there is a word for that, that that just escaped me. Another phenomenon that I think is really interesting here 
uh, is the sort of counter elitism uh, that, you know, McDonald identifies here uh, meets, I'd say, largely in the 1970s and the 1980s, although in the 90s and the aughties, when I'm in college and grad school, uh, it's still definitely dominant in academic circles, at least a sort of identity politics, counter elitism. Uh, so it's the idea that, uh, not that, you know, I have my opinion and you can't tell me whatever else, but, uh, you are part of the oppressor class. Therefore, none of your art can speak to me at all. So I think that there is another, another source of resistance to the kind of art that we're going to be talking about that, you know, McDonald identifies as high culture that comes from, you know, identity politics as a social force. And then finally, I mean, there, there's just no overestimating the power of social media and mass authorship. Uh, if, you know, in Gasset, the big problem is that everyone has his opinion. Uh, in the most recent 15 years, and we're getting up to 15 years, that makes me feel old. Uh, people have been able to go on MySpace, Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth, and not only uh, ignore the council of experts, but actually to become experts uh, by simple empirical piling up of hits, of clicks, of eyeballs, of all of those sorts of things. So uh, I think that McDonald's essay uh, definitely raises interesting questions in this moment, even as there are certain things about this moment that uh, McDonald really could not have anticipated. So, Michael, is there any any of the history there that I, I should have been more uh, precise about? No, and in fact, uh, Ortega y Gasset makes a appearance briefly at the end as a as a kind of aristocratic figure. Whom oh, that's right. I Mac forgot about that. McDonald yeah. kind of mildly distances himself from. And I got to say, anytime anybody has ever mentioned Revolt of the Masses, I think I got to read Revolt of the Masses, but I've never actually read it. Uh, it. It was assigned to us in sophomore humanities at Milligan College in 1997. But it, it's definitely part of a, a similar milieu as uh, as mass cult and mid cult right i mean in in oh, in, in yeah, some ways yeah. this essay is a defense of snobbery um but maybe not on the grounds that people might imagine it being defended on i don't know kind of vaguely socialist grounds i would say grubs anything to add there about mass man um and nothing that i don't think will it will shake out as we go um he 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 uh, there's the distinction between mass man and common man that he develops right. later on, um, but that's uh, related also to his distinction between, um, you know, one of the things he's complaining about and uh, folk, folk or or I don't know, low art levels of art. Um, so I don't want to take away from that. Yeah, and and the other the other thing I would add about mass man is that this is a person who has been stripped of all natural connections to other human beings. So the family is destroyed under mass man. Uh, the church is destroyed. Uh, small groups are destroyed, things like that. And instead, you're related not as a man to men or a woman to women or as a man to woman or as a woman to men, whatever. Um, not as an individual to other individuals, but as an atom to a kind of amorphous uh, center, which is which is mass, say, mass, mass society, 
What's that? Yes, but but you're you're no longer an individual, and and because of will. that, I I'm, I I think of this passage from um, Gabriel Marcel's Man Against Mass Society, uh, a, a title which I think pretty clearly puts it in league with McDonald here. Uh, Marcel writes, a human being who has undergone a certain type of psychological manipulation tends progressively to be reduced to the status of a mere thing, a psychic thing, of course, but nevertheless, a thing which falls quite tidily within the province of the theories elaborated by an essentially materialistic psychology. So I, I, I like the idea that, as, as Ortega y Gasset points out, that this is about focus groups in some ways, like, like this is... This is the will of the social scientists being applied to entertainment in particular is what McDonald is thinking about. But really all all segments of society, we have been kind of put on an assembly line and we're the products that come out on the other side. Well, the first important distinction McDonald makes is between high culture and this thing called mass cult. I think high culture is probably an easy enough term to guess about, but... David, what is mass cult, and why won't he call it mass culture? Well, he won't call it mass culture because he doesn't want to dignify it with the word culture. <laughs> this is the moment in the essay. Uh, it's very early on. It's like the third sentence. But it's in the moment in the essay when you realize that McDonald is a very funny, uh, angry person. Yeah. The latter may be called uh, mass culture or better mass cult since it really isn't culture at all. Mass cult is a parody of high culture. In the older forms, the artisans had long been at work, but uh, in this new stuff. Anyway, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the beginning. So it's mass cult because he's not going to dignify it with the word culture. He says, first of all, that it's, it's not just that it's bad art, because there's always been bad art. Um, Every attempt at art hasn't succeeded. <laughs> um, the problem that he identifies in the thing he calls mass cult uh, is that it doesn't. He says it doesn't even have the theoretical possibility of being good because it's not just. It's it's not that it's just unsuccessful art. It's non-art. It's anti-art. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, the verbs that he uses uh, to describe it, it is fabricated, it is manufactured, it is assembled, it is marketed as a standard product. Um, fabricated by technicians, hired by businessmen. Um, the idea is that mass cult is a, a product from cons for the consumption of the culture, it it is supposed to be meeting the needs for sort of pleasure and aesthetic engagement that art in high culture um, uh, meets. It's supposed to it's supposed to scratch those itches, except it's not generated by artists. It's generated by um, those who sell it as a as a product and so design it to be the product that is going to be most widely and most readily consumed. Um, so, uh, another quote, uh, they, the businessmen, try this and try that, and if something clicks at the box office, they try to cash in with a similar product. 
like consumer researchers with a new cereal. Uh, with a C. Yes, with a C. Because it might be a cereal with an S in the movie theater. Yes, it could be that also. So that that's uh, that seems to me to be the main complaint. He he he'll identify particular things as mass cult, and and you can kind of uh, think of think of examples. But his biggest complaint is that it is something that looks like art, feels like art. It's consumed. You know, you 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 look at a piece of visual art or a you know, produced, you know, by this mass cult phenomena in the same way that you would look at, you know, a Renoir with the same eyes and and so forth. But it's not produced from the same space, so to speak. And I guess I I I I guess I agree with him. Um, though I don't know. As one who grew up, uh, who grew up in the '80s on action figures and cartoons that were designed to sell action figures, and action figures that were designed to sell cartoons, which were designed to sell cereals, <laughs> um, uh, it feels uh, it feels it feels uh, difficult to abstract myself necessarily from the experience of someone who's who's in this thing that he detests. So. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important distinction to make between us and McDonald because however sympathetic we might be or not be to his position, the truth is he largely grew up in a world before mass cult and we we grew up in a world just inundated with mass cult. So uh, probably we're going to be less able than he is to despise it even if we're inclined to despise it. And moreover, yeah. we got some of those toys that David was talking about at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, we should say here that the restaurant McDonald's is named after Dwight McDonald. <laughs> they got rid of the A, but no, of course I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, his his angry ghost hovers over every location. He Mad actually it. changed his name to Ray Kroc and... <laughs> Alrighty. Well, at one point, Michael, that uh, I'd like to highlight in addition is that he does make the good point at the end of the mass cult part of the essay that it's not always an art of distraction. It can also be an art of propaganda. And he says that the mass cult of the Soviet Union tends towards the latter, while the mass cult of the United States tends towards the former. So, uh, you know, it, it's the, the classic Neil Postman 1984 versus Brave New World game, uh, you know, but what McDonald sees that, you know, uh, later on Neil Postman explicates is that, uh, you know, there there's not just one way to have a totalizing society. It can be one of propaganda and a very intentional direct um, manipulation of the public, or it can be a culture or a cult because we're trying to be Orwell and truncate words. Uh, it can be a cult that, uh, you know, distracts people so thoroughly that they just never have the attention span to organize. 
Yeah, and I, I think one of the things public intellectuals of the of the middle part of the 20th century, for better or for worse, do is erase the line between the United States and the Soviet Union. These these two forces that we think of as being opposed, and of course, in some ways they are, but in many ways they're both just mass societies, um, albeit as you point out, mass societies of very different sorts. Yeah. One other distinction that he makes is between mass cult and folk art, which uh, if uh, if you're like me, and I know I am, you start this essay uh, and uh, sort of get your dander up early because of your, you know, the, 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 the low taste that you harbor, which the low taste which, which I harbor. Um, I'm... Th- you know, of course, as I go trying to think of, well, but, you know, what about this thing? What about that thing? And it turns out that many of the mental mental whatabouts that, that I was kind of raising as I went, he addresses with a comment on uh, high culture and folk art and distinguishing both from mass cult. Um, the... F- the distinction that he makes, it's its not just that mass cult is the thing that isn't high culture. It's that it, it also isn't the thing that is uh, a low or folk culture. Um, it's uh, folk art, he says, grows from below. Um, it is shaped by the people to meet their needs. Um, even though, he says, it often took its cue from high culture, whereas mass cult comes from above, fabricated by technicians, hired by businessmen. Um, uh, Another quote, folk art was the people's own institution, their private little kitchen garden walled off from the great formal park of their masters. But mass cult breaks down the wall, integrating the masses into a debased form of high culture and thus becoming an instrument of domination. So, um, to turn perhaps to uh, a, 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 a pseudo-parallel um, and imagined um, mi- Middle Ages in which you have the Lord in the manor with his art and his, his chivalric romances and his tapestries and all the rest of it, and then you have the peasant um, in the village and on the farm with... Uh, his folk ballads about Robin Hood, except no peasant, you know, no peasant uh, troubadour wrote that ballad of Robin Hood. In fact, uh, it was the Lord's Reeve who wrote it and sold it to you. Right. <laughs> so uh, that 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 idea that ma- mass cult isn't even. It, it doesn't even have that dignity of, of being something that genuinely rises from among the people. It is another product sold to them, um, designed by those who, who, are, not, who are not them. And, um, and I would even say that mass cult is even more dangerous for folk art than it is for high culture, because folk art is what it's going to replace first and foremost. Right, right. Um, the you know why 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 make a box that you could put your lunch in when you can get a lunch box right or whatever. why learn to play the guitar when you can just turn on Spotify right or guitar guitar hero 
<laughs> to, to use an example I know gets Nathan angry. Does it get me angry? I just know you hate Guitar Hero. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> not not that you're going to get angry and defend Guitar Hero. I, I was going to say, I, uh, when did I become the defender of Guitar Hero? But, okay, I, I get what you're saying now. No, yeah, but, I, I mean, I, honestly, that's part of the... That's part I of the issue, right? I haven't about that game long enough that I had, I had honestly forgotten about it. <laughs> is it. But that's part of the issue with Guitar Hero, right? Is it's it's a mass it's mass cult that's being used to, I don't know if it's used to, it has the effect of forcing out folk culture. Instead of writing your own songs, instead of learning to play the guitar, what you're doing is just absentmindedly engaging in, um, in mass-produced distraction. Well, I have attempted to play it, and you can't do it absentmindedly. I mean, I think that, honestly, if you could do it absentmindedly, it wouldn't be nearly as, uh, I, I don't even, I don't want to say dangerous, because I think that makes too much of it, uh, but it would be a different kind of phenomenon. Hmm. I mean, it is something that occupies your attention, uh, but it is not creative in the way that playing a guitar is. Right. So, I mean, before the invention of... Radio, uh, probably maybe paperback novels. But before the invention of radio, let's say, folk culture would have been dominant. Um, and, and radio dis begins to displace it. And by the time you get to the 21st century, I'm not sure how much folk culture, folk art really exists anymore. Well, I mean, it has taken its place in universities and museums. People right. are preserving it as historical artifact rather than simply producing it as what we do. Yeah. However dangerous Mass Cult is, he's much more concerned about Mid Cult, which is a related phenomenon. Nathan, what is Mid Cult and why is it so dangerous? In simple terms, when uh, college education, and you know, he say he talks a fair bit about the GI Bill and the swell in uh, college attendance and college graduation in the middle of the 20th century, but when more and more people become educated, you might expect that they would turn away from mass cult and, you know, turn towards high culture. But instead, what happens in McDonald's story uh, is that you get the rise of mid-cult. So mid-cult is mass cult pretending to high culture. Uh, it is something that is simulating but still manufacturing the kinds of ambiguities and complexities and idiosyncrasies that you would normally associate with high culture. Uh, and yet it is still engineered, it is still mass-produced, it is still uh, distributed in ways uh, that, you know, reach out to the maximal audience. The dangers, I mean, are, are, are fairly evident as McDonald's sees them. First of all, it gives an illusion of culture where, in fact, there is no individuality, there is no idiosyncrasy. Uh, it draws creators into itself so that, uh, you know, we can see it in our lifetime probably better than McDonald could see it in 1960. Uh, if you're going to be a musician, uh, you really have a choice between being a sort of quotary symphony musician that'll be enjoyed by a few hundred people, uh, and probably fewer than that if you're not in one of the big urban centers, uh, or you can go into rock and roll, you can go into pop music, you can get on the streaming services, uh, and you can become, you know, a mass phenomenon. 
Uh, and so, I mean, you know, the, what this reminded me of, Michael, is the, is the uh, narrative that, you know, honestly, I heard more about 10 years ago. I don't know if this is a cultural shift or just that I'm getting old. Uh, but this is the I liked it before it was mainstream phenomenon. Uh, you know, people are trying to be idiosyncratic. Uh, but then, you know, with the popularity of their third album or whatever else, all of a sudden everyone likes it. And that's when the resentment of the older fans kicks in and they insist that, you know, they are Cliff Burton Metallica fans, not this Jason Newstead non nonsense. And I realize Jason Newstead hasn't been their bassist for 20 years now. But that's still where, you know, I think of the battle lines because I'm old. But this is um, this is his argument about Old Man in the Sea, right? That Hemingway, well, you didn't read it, but I'll just tell you. Hemingway was once a real writer. And in his old age, he kind of sold out, If you to, to, to continue your, your metaphor. He, he sold out and wrote something that doesn't challenge anybody and that feels like it's been focus grouped. He hates Old right, Man in the Sea. Right. And like you said, I haven't read that chapter, but that sounds consistent with what I've read here. So, uh, David, anything else on uh, mid-cult that you'd want to add here? Not really, though, because his the, the sorts of things that he diagnoses as, well, this is clearly still part of high culture, and this is clearly something that is in mid-culture. You know, I'm not as familiar with sort of the, the mid-century examples that he cites um but the w one thing that i think is is useful uh in this distinction is that mid cult still thinks of the way in which it's distributed and the relation that it has to its consumer in the same way that mass cult does even as it is adopting the tropes and the language and the mystique of the high culture um, so uh, while much of the way that uh, much of, much of the way that he writes and argues in this is is in this kind of artistic critique aesthetic this belongs in that quarter category because it has because of it's it's this way um I, I I can't always follow him down into the weeds of that discussion. Um, but the distinction of the way it's distributed, the way it's marketed, the way it's consumed, um, I think still still makes a certain sense. Um, and but the thing is with with Midcolt, um, he talks about art magazines and literary magazines and things like that that are aimed at uh, audiences that he doesn't think are the ones who value the art as as art. Like, so he's like, he, he it'll be a painting that is undisputably high culture, but it is reproduced in a magazine that is sold in this way. Next so, to the roller skating horse. Next to the roller skating horse. <laughs> Yeah, but, the, the sections so, so, on Midcult have, I think, the two funniest lines in the essay. Yeah. It's full of funny lines. One is the one about the roller skating horse, and you come away thinking that both Monet and, roller, and the roller skating horse are very talented. And yeah. the, the other is his crack about the revised standard version of the Bible, uh, which he says is like tearing down Westminster Abbey to build Disneyland from the fragments. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it... 
yes, he's making he's 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 saying these things, but nonetheless, this painting, this Renoir, was reproduced in this magazine. So what makes it what made it mid cult, right? Why isn't that page high cult and the next page with the roller skating horse? Uh, uh, why isn't that high culture and then the next page with the roller skating horse is now suddenly we're in mid cult? It's because mid cult is not just about how it's produced, but also about how it's consumed. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, you can listen to Mozart in a way that he thinks is wrong. You can behold, you know, the the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Sistine Chapel, um, in a way that he that that he regards as in some way, a, a, an incorrect, a demeaning engagement. Well, you know, having Elmer Fudd sing Wagner doesn't make Looney Tunes high culture. Says right. you. <laughs> I, I, he, he does point out that mass cult and mid cult coexist all the time. And in fact, there's a lot of kind of mid-level writers who will shift back and forth on the same page between high culture and, and, and mid cult. Um, he mentions Dickens in particular. So the, the line between those two things is kind of hazy sometimes to be sure. Yeah. Okay. So I want to pause here in the middle of the episode to evaluate the central premises of this essay, and then we'll kind of apply it to current events. But first we need to decide whether we agree with it or not. What do you guys make of the various distinctions that McDonald is drawing here? Is he right to be concerned about mid-cult, or is all of this, as he predicts you're going to say, snobbery? Okay, so much of his critique and his distinction between high culture and mass cult, he has this uh, couple pages where he compares Edgar Allan Poe with... uh, Oh, I've completely Earl Stanley Gardner. Yes, Earl Stanley Gardner. I was, I was, like, I had Edgar Rice Burroughs in my head, but I was like, no, that's the wrong three names. Starts with an E guy, Earl Stanley Gardner. Yes, guy who invented Perry Mason. Right. Uh, and that comparison, uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, uh, no surprise, comes out worse for the comparison, and a big part of that is the low degree of individuality that he 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 sees Gardner displaying in his writing um in the and in the high degree of uh mundanity in terms of style it's it's this very kind of functional prose that's you know just doing enough to get the story out and even the story itself is only different enough from the previous story that you could put a different title on it. Right. Whereas Poe is, well, gosh, I mean, we know Poe and like, you know, your mileage may vary on, on his pro style, but you know, it's you idiosyncratic. You, yeah, you can't say that it's bland. <laughs> well, but, because one of the things we didn't mention is that high culture and folk art are both human beings speaking to other human beings, individuals speaking to yes. individuals, whereas yeah. mass cult and mid cult are nobody speaking to the masses. Yes. So, nonetheless, that argument depends a lot on viewing art in a romantic sort, uh, a romantic way, uh, like the Romantics, Wordsworth, 
Coleridge, guys like that. All right. Um, in in that its source comes from this individual talent, this individual perspective. Um, its purpose is a kind of individual expression, and that's where that's where it comes from, and that's where it's that's where its value lies. And so the mass cult effacement of the individuality of the one who produces the art, um, and the fact that it's being produced for for reasons that have nothing to do with the expression of that person's individuality, um, are a sin against nature as the romance as the roman or a sin against art as the romantic defines it. Um, but there was art before the romantics. Um, much of it produced by people whose names weren't even known in their time. Um, and those are, and the quality of that art and the production of that art had nothing to do with any kind of expression of the essential individuality of the person producing it. I'm thinking about the relationship of a Gothic cathedral to an individual stonemason, mm-hmm. um, or even the architect of the Gothic cathedral. Um, it, there's there's something a facing of individuality in some for- forms of art um, before the romantic. High quality, lots of skill, lots of talent, but not with putting that, 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 one, that one person and their personality, their distinctness forward um, in, in that way. And the, and the, so I, I don't know if, if, there's, if there's ways of, if, if there's art before the romantics that doesn't pursue art for the reasons romantics pursue it, might, might some of his critique of mass cult um, have to be reworked differently if we go back and rework our understanding of art so that it's not just something that makes sense post-romantics. Well, let me ask you a question, David. Is he saying that the purpose of art is the expression of an individual personality, which I agree with you, that's a, that's a romantic concept? Or is he saying that the effect of art is the expression of an individual personality? Not so much that the, that when, you, when you sit down to write a poem, your job is to, uh, you know, bleed yourself in some sort of Wordsworthian uh, ecstasy, but... Is, is it the case that if you're making real art, you, you are going to you're, you're going to be part of it, even if that's not what you're intending to do? Or a third option, is it really about the way that the, the work of art that is produced is capable of interacting with the individual who encounters it? Because you've you got the cathedral example. I agree that that's, that's an effacement of the individuality of the, uh, of the architect. But to walk into a Gothic cathedral, in my experience, is to be spoken to at the heart of yourself as an individual. Yep. Um, not, not in the sense that I'm the only person that matters, but it speaks to you not through committee, but to you directly. Whereas um, your average megachurch, I, I don't know, does that. That's, that's a fair point. I'm just saying tying as much of it to the individual talent and the individual expression as it seems to me that early on his argument does that's something that 
I think we might need to retool if this argument is going to hold not just as 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 an analysis of now but as an analysis of things pre-romantics right. how is you know uh, the the other the other thing that i was thinking uh the the mass produced you know statue of of michelangelo's david right um is in no way uh communicating anything about the individuality of the factory worker <laughs> right who who applies the um you know wh- whatever you know stain or highlighting wash that makes the colors pop or whatever like like that's that's in no way related to that person um but there are forms of art that are also he that he he talks about film a lot um a film i i would see as something more like a gothic cathedral where maybe you've got this folk yes you do have this focus group at the top you've got these producers who who want to to see something that's you know very much like the last successful thing and so forth and yet a movie is such a big space that there might be this little you know that there might be little corners where you know there's a little expressive gargoyle that's one person's little weirdness, and if you pay attention, you see it. Um, I mean, I I think some of these mid cult and maybe even mass cult things that uh, he holds up for critique might have spaces in them where something that could be genuinely appreciated as art um, can happen, even if they were not produced for that reason and even if the means of their production and the means of their consumption uh, suppress those goods in particular ways. I think he would agree with that given um, what he says about Dickens. Okay. Well, and honestly, Dickens is one of the places where I think his argument lacks consistency because in places, I, I agree with David, you have a sort of almost determinism when it comes to modes of production and especially the modes of distribution that if this is written for mass consumption it can't be good but then Dickens somehow is a magical exception to that uh and I would agree that you know both that Dickens wrote for money uh and that he is an exceptional literary artist but I think that that gives the lie to the strong distinction between high cult and mid cult uh, because, I mean, you know, it, it breaks down that determinism. This is a mode of distribution and production that was not present when Dante was writing the Commedia, and yet something good emerges from it. I, I think where he cuts the discussion off too early, if you will, is he says that there are certain modes of production, distribution, and consumption that by definition can't be good art, and I want to say, well, I mean, give it a little bit of time. It, it reminds me, honestly, of uh, Theodore Adorno's yeah. uh, now infamous uh, you know, essay where he, he explains why jazz will never be good music. And I, I have taught this essay next to that one. Okay, so say a little bit more about that, Michael, because that, that was the connection that first occurred to me. Yeah, I, I mean, it's... I, I, I used to teach it because it... it challenges students because i the, the vast majority of my students never engaged in anything that mcdonald would view as high culture outside of maybe the classroom and and maybe not even there it 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 on the one hand 
teaches you to be skeptical of the things you enjoy too easily. And I think that's probably a good thing to be skeptical of. Uh, and on the other hand, it, it teaches you to, because you love these things, fight back against the authorial voice a little bit, you know? I, I could never I could never be Adorno. I could never be McDonald, even though part of me really admires both of those essays and, and wants to agree with them. I'm attached not just to mass cult, but to mid cult. I do wonder about the timing of this, right? You say, give it some time. It's 1960. He says, almost all rock and roll belongs to mass cult, which in 1960, that's probably true. Rock and roll became art five years after this, let's say. I think Rubber Soul is probably one of the first um, rock albums that had artistic pretensions, the first commercially successful rock albums that had artistic pretensions. And I, I, am, I would love to know what he thought of that, um, whether he thought that was just mid-cult or whether it's possible for something that begins as mass cult to somehow short-circuit that middle category altogether and just become high culture, become art. I don't have an answer for that. Um, and it, it's because he didn't give rock and roll at least enough time to get there or film for that matter. And, and um, yeah. we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, although he has a strange, exceptional case in Charlie Chaplin. He says that is high culture. Right. And well, and, and the part yeah. you may not know is that he ended up being the film critic for The New Yorker. Nice. But nice. the whole auteur movement in filmmaking happens what starts starts happening six, seven years after this essay. So he's he's standing right in the cusp of all of these big cultural changes. And um, I've read other essays by him. I haven't read anything from after those changes happened. And I would I would be very interested in knowing what he made of some of those changes. Well, and it reminds me as well, Michael, of Thoreau in whatever decade he was writing Walden saying this novel thing, it's never going to amount to anything. Read the classics. <laughs> right. <laughs> Give it time, man. Give it time. Turning to also not just the whether the that mode of production or those particular art forms um, that he identifies, whether they can mature into something that is art, um, I think it's also worth considering um, what goes on in the experience of the person who encounters it. Um, maybe mass cult is designed to be you know consumed by a lowest con common denominator without confronting them in any presuppositions without causing them any dis uh, discomfort that they aren't particularly looking for or whatever but that doesn't mean that n th there isn't anyone for whom an encounter with that thing would not be an encounter with art and of course, right now, David's talking about getting Danny Anderson talking about werewolf movies. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, 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 that's a big part of it. Um, also, my wife was watching this series of documentaries um, about how toys in the 80s were made. All right. And I grew up with G.I. Joe action figures. And everybody knows who grew up with G.I. Joe action figures that the coolest of them all is Snake Eyes. Absolutely. Because he's a ninja. Do you know why Snake Eyes exists? I assume it was a focus group. No. Snake Eyes exists because of a manufacturing concern. In order to make the manufacturing of highly colored action figures profitable, they determined 
that they would make one part of that initial action figure line, one of that uh, initial product line, without any color at all, so that the colors could be used in all the others. Okay, so I, I get so, that. So but... they chose a character that was all black because it was the cheapest plastic, the cheapest color, and they said, well, what could be all black? A ninja. But all I'm getting from that <laughs> anecdote, David, is yeah. that is that we all thought that the focus group thing was the coolest, that the the manufacturing concern was the coolest. Not that anybody had some sort of genuine artistic response to Snake Eyes, because I, I do think yeah. you would have a hard time arguing that. Just well, that I, it I worked. don't know. Mass cult works. That's why it's mass cult, you know? Well, I, w- what I'm saying is, like, they didn't even focus group that and say what would most people think is cool. They just said, we need to come up with a character that doesn't use any color in it. <laughs> Right. And honestly, I think that's another weakness of McDonald is that he is given to conspiracy thinking about these things Mm -hmm. when something a lot more uh, contingent and a lot more chaotic is probably behind a lot of these phenomena. Right. I mean, he has the imaginary conversation with the movie executive that we're just giving the people what they want, but really he's conditioned them to want certain things. And I'm thinking, well, Except when you think of the Kristen Stewart, Charlie's Angels movie, uh, you know that. Oh, well, it doesn't always like, work. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 it, but here's the thing: if you want to say that this is a an operant conditioning scenario, it really should. Oh, I don't know. It it yeah, it's not mm-hmm. perfect because human beings can't ever be reduced only to objects. You know, part of us is always going to rebel against that. But I, I would think that a James K. Smith fan like you would be perfectly uh, perfectly comfortable saying that Hollywood is conditioning what we like. Yeah. But I, 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 I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> but keep going, David. Sorry. I want to go back to Snake Eyes. He was mythology for me, you guys. I saw almost none of the cartoon because my family didn't have a television. I might see, like, an episode if I visited a friend's house. David's family was the original hipsters. <laughs> well, I mean, we were Gothardite homeschoolers. I don't I don't know if that if that's on the hipster. That's one radar. of those horseshoe situations, I think. Yeah. Convergent evolution. Um, somehow dolphins end up looking like sharks while being mammals. So, for me... Uh, he 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 was he was mythology. I knew very little about him, but what I knew from the cartoon is that he was always silent. And the silence of Snake Eyes <laughs> was it 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 bore down on me. You didn't know what he was thinking. You didn't know how he felt. Um and that gave him this kind of he he, he, this 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 hiddenness, this inscrutability, that as a child was was fascinating, and while I'm sure they didn't give him a voice for the same reason that they didn't give him any color, because that meant they didn't have to hire a voice actor. <laughs> um, what it ended up creating in at least one boy's experience was this fascination with this this 
silent and dark and apparently um, deep and mysterious character. Like it, it created a it created a fascination um, that was. Uh, I mean, it's it's it still lingers, right? You know, you, you know what you did, right, David? No. In the absence of the total mass cult, you made folk art out of it. Yeah. But what what I'm saying is that like that possibility exists because that human because the the, the potential of the individual for the artistic impu- impulse exists it can also exist on in in the individual who is receiving the mass cult that ma- that that bit of mass cult might end up doing something for which it was never designed might end up being consumed in a way that it was never intended it might become an experience far more profound than was felt by anyone involved in its invention and production um and that's right. and, that's and because the individual is bigger than all of the means of production. Right. And David, I, I think that example that you just narrated, I mean, is an example of where I think that McDonald's determinism is a little bit too tight. I don't know if it's an apology for Hasbro, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I think maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. Nathan is that while on one hand I, I see his his critiques of a culture that's so shaped by this or a society that's so shaped by this um, as as apropos, I think the determinism makes my collar feel a little bit tight. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, uh, as in our Gabriel Marcel episodes, we have only made it through half our questions and we're almost at an hour. So we're going to split this one into two as well. And I'll go ahead and tease what we're going to talk about next time so that you'll be salivating all week. Uh, next time, we are going to relitigate the Scorsese versus MCU argument that we had a few months ago in the Taxi Driver episode. We're going to talk about whether HBO and Netflix are mid-cult or something else entirely. And we're going to talk about whether this podcast is a force for good in the universe. So... Uh, you have that to look forward to next week in episode 283, uh, the second half of our mass cult and mid-cult conversation. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. I, you know, we went 10 years without ever having a two-part episode, and now we've had two within six months. I don't, I don't know what that says about us. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we're picking topics that are too big. But if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com our web address is christianhumanist.org you can go there and see the wide variety of podcasts that we have uh, on our network and I hope hope you'll listen to some of the other ones the Christian Humanist podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network our press liaison is Kristen Philippic for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger <laughs>